the other side of the glass. My name is Mike Lewandowski. You've been listening to 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Gray Matters is coming up next. Stay tuned for that. We'll leave you with a good night and a go blue. Work it, make it, do it Makes us harder, better, faster, stronger Not, not, not that, that don't kill me Can only make us stronger I need you to hurry up now Cause I can't wait much longer I know I got to be right now Cause I can't get much stronger Man, I've been waiting all night now That's how long I've been on ya Thank you for listening to the Daily Sports Report On 88.3 FM Ann Arbor where the puck drops here. Right Let's now. get lost tonight. You could be my black Kate Moss tonight. Play secretary on the ball tonight. And you don't give a f- what they all say, right? Awesome, the Christian and Christian Dior. Damn, they don't make them like this anymore. I ask, cause I'm not sure. Do anybody make real d- anymore? Bad when the presence of greatness. Cause right now that has forsaken us. You should be honored by my lateness. That I would even show up. Hello and welcome to Gray Matters, your weekly news, media analysis, and cultural commentary program. My name is Jim Dwyer. Dick Whaley is uh, away on business uh, this week. And as I walk past the uh, television screens in the window on the way down here, it's baseball season, so we have officially shifted. Weather's a little dreary today, but uh, forget ye not, April showers bring May flowers. So don't uh, lament the rain too much today. Uh, But let's get started. Uh, I'm going to deal with a couple of uh, stories straight out of uh, today's papers. Uh, the Financial Times, and uh, a couple of interesting things from uh, today's New York Times. We'll uh, start with the Financial Times items, though. Uh, Of course, uh, when the Russians uh, reclaimed, re-annexed the Crimean Peninsula uh, a week or so ago, there was a lot of hue and cry about economic sanctions against Russia for that. Well, economic sanctions are a game that go both ways, and uh, the Ukraine now finds itself locked into a standoff over a $2 billion uh, bill for natural gas. Uh, $2.2 billion, actually. The Russian energy giant Gazprom has uh, said that you're going to be cut off if you do not pay this. The Ukraine government says it is willing to pay the $2.2 billion bill, but reacted angrily to a move by Gazprom last week to raise the price it charges Ukraine from $268 per 1,000 cubic meters of gas to $485 and to claw back previous discounts. You don't want to play nice with neighbor, you don't get discount rate. It's, uh, it's business. That's uh, how sovereign states uh, run these days when they can. Uh, So here's a rare example of the uh, corporate state versus the sovereign state. Um, Arseniy Yatsunik, Ukraine's prime minister on Saturday, accused Russia of following up on its annexation of Crimea with a plan to pressure and grab the Ukraine in its entirety, apparently, through gas and economic aggression. 
This has gone on before, though. Uh, this is not the first time. There's been uh, halts to gas deliveries from Russia to Ukraine in 2009. And, of course, during 2006, the first price dispute between Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, during that crisis, the Ukraine allegedly siphoned EU, yet as European Union-bound gas, for domestic needs after Russia sharply reduced transit flow. Russia supplies about 30% of Europe's natural gas, almost half of that being piped through the Ukraine. Uh, of course, World War I started with intertangling alliances, and now that there are intertangling corporate alliances, and some of these corporations are in fact owned by states, this uh, gets pretty messy. Uh, the article ends with a note that crowds of pro-Russian separatists yesterday seized government buildings in Donetsk and Lugansk in eastern Ukraine. So the situation continues to fester a bit there. Uh, also from the Financial Times, uh, the latest breakdown in the uh, Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. Of course, it uh, doesn't take much. It seems like uh, the latest breakdown is just another link in the chain of consistent and constant breakdowns in this so-called peace process. Uh, John Reed, writing from Jerusalem, uh, says both sides lay blame as Israel talks falter. Uh, each side accusing each other of acting unilaterally to sabotage peace talks. Um, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says, quote, the Palestinians have much to lose by this unilateral move. Unilateral moves will only push a peace agreement farther away. And unilateral steps on their part will be met with unilateral steps on our part. This is uh, a fancy way of saying they started it. They started it. But the unilateral move uh, that he's referring to is that the Palestinians have uh, taken steps to um, join the international stage. For uh, They're asking Israel to uh, accede to 14 international treaties, including Geneva uh, Conventions and treaties on racism, genocide, civil and political rights. Um, Palestinians have initiated the process, uh, signing applications to join international bodies, one of the Palestinians' few strong sources of leverage over Israel, after Israel refused to release the prisoners, as they were supposed to do at the end of March. And this is a prisoner release program that uh, is, whose origins go back 20 years to the Oslo Peace Accords. Uh, so this is something they've long ago agreed to do and have decided that they're not going to do. So, um, yeah, um, they started it. Uh, and, of course, people often ask, where, why has no uh, Palestinian, you know, Martin Luther King or Palestinian Mahatma Gandhi come forward to, you know, sort of heroically show the way to uh, his beleaguered people? Well, if there is a Palestinian Martin Luther King... Um, he's probably in jail. And so uh, there's, I think, the answer to that particular situation. <clears throat> uh, another piece, uh, well, I guess we'll just shift gears now to uh, today's New York Times. And uh, rather bizarre and I think kind of lame 
that there's one of the front page stories in today's New York Times is that country music is back. Yeehaw. Um, isn't that great? Uh, Taylor Swift, country's biggest star at Sunday's award show. Well, okay, so there was an award show, um, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I guess that's a business story, if nothing else. Uh, country music sort of in commercial decline after everybody was saturated with Garth Brooks. I think once Garth Brooks sort of had that bizarre jumping the shark moment where he got sick of being Garth Brooks and decided to be, I'm a rock and roll guy. And he made up some fake name and like did his hair different and stuff. And he's like, he started doing shows as this like Johnny Sunshine Flash Pot or whatever the hell uh, he called himself. Uh, and his country career never really reestablished itself after that, you know, despite the mass quantities of units, um, he and his hat moved. <clears throat> so uh, that's great. You know, I like country music. Uh, I urge listeners to uh, devote a couple hours of your Saturday afternoon to uh, the Down Home Show right here on WCBN, hosted by some uh, excellent DJs, very knowledgeable who play real country music, not um, a lot of this current day country music, and this is here in the realm of my personal opinion, not facts. Uh, a lot of contemporary country music is really little more than pop rock with a hat or sort of a country skirt on. Uh, so, yeah, real country music is good stuff. It's, uh, it's American uh, culture. It's greatness. Uh, so uh, three cheers for the return of country music. Um, because of my own Catholic background, I'm intrigued by this story also uh, on the front page about Catholic schools here in the United States uh, seeking to import Chinese students and their parents' cash. Because, of course, Catholic schools, their reputation for discipline, uh, they don't pay their teachers as much as public school teachers get, but usually there's a, you know, there's some good teachers in every school. And so the high school that I went to in Jackson, for example, a Catholic high school, there were some weak teachers there, sure, but there were also a couple of world-class teachers, and I think that's probably true anywhere. But um, the uh, esteem, the, you know, the, it's the cheapest of the private schools, uh, the Catholic schools are, and so they have generally good reputations. They are generally on top of the discipline scenario. Um, but the article goes on to note that, well, a lot of these, uh, you know, Chinese Catholic students are atheists or Buddhists. Uh, and so it's interesting. Uh, that, that's a trend I'm going to uh, follow and observe. Um, so uh, kind of an amusing one on a personal note for me. Um, not so amusing and actually entering into the realm of, of genuine moral ambiguity is um, a story coming out of Spain. And this is by Jim Yardley again in today's New York Times. Uh, the headline is Facing His Torturer as Spain Confronts Its Past. <clears throat> well, of course, back in the uh, 1970s when uh, the fascist dictator of Spain, Generalissimo Francisco Franco, finally died in 1975, I believe. Um, Saturday Night Live uh, made a sort of a running gag out of his death, <clears throat> simply because, like many a Soviet uh, premier, 
Uh, he'd lingered in bad health for so long that, you know, the headline for months and months and then years and years was Generalissimo Francisco Franco is still alive. He's in hospital, blah, blah, blah. Well, so when he died, it became the joke that he's still dead. Um, his health <clears throat> became a, a story in and of itself. And the joke was pretty popular and a funny one. But there's really nothing very funny about Generalissimo Francisco Franco at all, except for the fact that he's still dead. And that is kind of funny. But not so funny is the uh, troublesome past that uh, Spain's attempt to just sort of like turn the page on its past and then walk boldly into the future without any sense of looking back is beginning to become difficult, especially when countries like Chile have begun to go back and prosecute those who committed crimes against humanity, uh, crimes against their own people, uh, violent crimes, political crimes, and uh, crimes of repression. Uh, some Spanish citizens are beginning to feel like, hey, you know what? Um, I think what I went through needs to be at least acknowledged. <clears throat> so I'm going to read a little bit from uh, Jim Yardley's article here. Jose Maria Galante was a leftist college student when he was handcuffed to the ceiling of a basement torture chamber, his body dangling in the air. A police inspector laughed and taunted him, striking martial arts poses before repeatedly kicking and beating his face and chest. The man who Mr. Galante says tortured him was an infamous enforcer of the Franco dictatorship in the 1970s, widely known as Billy the Kid for his habit of spinning his pistol on his finger. So Mr. Galante was startled last year when he located the man living in a spacious apartment less than a mile from his own neighborhood in central Madrid. Quote, how did I feel when I saw him for the first time? We got you now, you bastard. Mr. Galante said, adding, I agree with the idea of reconciliation, but you just can't turn the page. You have to read that page before you turn it. Close quote. This week, Mr. Galante is again planning to see Billy the Kid whose real name is Antonio Gonzalez Pacheco. This time, it will be at a hearing at Spain's National Court, where Mr. Galante and other victims are, for the first time, seeking to prosecute Mr. Pacheco in a case that is reopening the country's painful Francoist past and threatening the political pact that helped Spain transition from dictatorship to democracy. Well, let's not forget that Spain had a democracy before the fascist coup, uh, and the United States did nothing to help. That's called the Spanish Civil War. Uh, Civil War is actually a, sort of a misleading term because it was, in essence, an army takeover. <clears throat> the phalangists and fascists in the Spanish army uh, did not like the you know, socialist ways, oh my God, of uh, some of the Spanish Republicans, uh, even if it was many or most, um, it was a fascist coup. And so the transition from dictatorship to democracy was not something strange or something that had never happened before. Spain, in fact, had been a democracy. So it was a return to a democracy. I'll just... Uh, parenthetically add to Yardley's article, now returning to his text. As I positioned veer to page A8, Spain's democratic transition has been a source 
of national pride, a period that saw political rivals make compromises credited with allowing a new country to emerge. The public wistfulness for that lost political spirit was evident last month when the death of Adolfo Suarez, the prime minister who guided the country in those early years. But the grand bargain that allowed the transition was a complicated one. After Franco's death in 1975, a sweeping amnesty law absolved everyone, leftists and right-wing Francoists, and encouraged a kind of collective forgetting in the name of reconciliation. The belief was that Spain could prosper only by looking to the future, not the past. For victims like Mr. Galante, this meant the door to justice was slammed shut. For more than 40 years, Spanish courts have refused to hear these cases, citing the amnesty law. So Mr. Galante and others have had to take their complaints to Argentina, invoking the legal principle of universal jurisdiction, under which certain crimes, because of their magnitude, transcend borders. I'll insert a footnote here. Henry Kissinger, if you're listening, be careful what countries you fly to. But we've already known about Kissinger's travel problems for years. Back to Yardley's text. An Argentine judge is now seeking the extradition of Mr. Pacheco and another individual accused of torture. Mr. Pacheco's hearing on April 10th in Madrid is to decide whether to grant the request. Spanish courts are usually reluctant to extradite Spanish citizens, but whatever the outcome, the Argentine case is stirring up old demons in Spain. Critics say Spain must confront its past and even push aside the amnesty law. Others warn that doing so could lead to a slew of prosecutions, even reaching the country's elite. Oh, oh my dear, we don't want to reach the country's elite with legal prosecution. Today, Spanish politics, business, and law are still sprinkled with people who have direct or indirect links to the Franco regime. Surprise, surprise. Last week, a lawyer for the victims asked the Argentine judge to bring charges against five former ministers from the Franco era. Quote, I just don't think it would be good for the country, said Ramon uh, Jaraguay, a lawmaker with the opposition Socialist Party who opposed Franco during the 70s, but is reluctant to break the amnesty pact. Quote, we don't know where it starts and where it finishes. If we take someone who was a torturer in 1970, why aren't we going to go after some ministers in Franco's government who are still alive? Why not the courts? Where do we set the limit? Close quote. Spain's government is already facing a growing pressure from the United Nations. Pablo de Greif, a United Nations special rapporteur, said Spain lagged behind other European countries in addressing its recent past. He said Spain's government had done too little to help victims of the Franco era and recommended setting aside the money, uh, setting aside the amnesty law so that prosecutions could go forward either in Argentina or in Spain. Quote, some problems do not go away, said Mr. de Greif. Uh, on the promotion of truth, justice, reparation, and guarantee of non-recurrence. Good luck with those. Uh, uh, DeGreif continues, quote, They cannot be swept under the rug. People, uh, not surprisingly, do not forget. Close quote. Franco was a contemporary of Hitler and Mussolini, though his dictatorship lasted until the 70s. Imagine that, uh, a buddy of Hitler and Mussolini who was allowed to thrive and flourish, you know, well into the 70s. It's shameful, really, on the part of the rest of the world. Um, not enough was done to deal with Franco. <clears throat> Where was John McClane then arguing for another American war? Not that I'm saying we should have gone to war with Spain to get rid of Franco, but uh, honestly, 
That man uh, likes to stir up a, a new war anywhere. Back to Yardley's article. Not far from Mr. Pacheco's apartment, the National Francisco Franco Foundation serves as the watchdog of the Franco legacy. The small office is like a time capsule from the dictatorship. Portraits of Franco hang on the walls while a small display offers souvenir Franco T-shirts and other memorabilia. Get yours today, folks. Quote, since the Catholic kings, Franco was in power the longest and with the most public support, said Jamie Alonzo. Who did not just ring in there on the phone. That's somebody else, I'm afraid. Sorry about that interruption. Um, Mr. Alonzo, a lawyer... Oh, let's go back to that quote. Uh, Since the Catholic kings, Franco was in power the longest and with the most public support, said uh, Jaime Alonzo, the foundation spokesman and second in command. Notice there's a command structure in the Franco uh, memorial regime. Uh, Quote, he had a great popular support until his death, despite what the propagandists maintain, close quote. Mr. Alonzo, a lawyer, argues that Franco was not a dictator and scoffs at evidence of forced labor and post-war atrocities. <clears throat> what is happening now is the need the left has to ge- delegitimize history. Well, of course, fascists are expert at delegitimizing history, so if that were occurring, you'd, you'd think they'd... Well, never mind. Most historians agree that Franco oversaw a regime that trampled civil civil liberties and often ruled by fear and with impunity. Uh, For several years, private associations led by the descendants of Franco victims have pushed for the exhumation of mass graves from the Spanish Civil War and the dictatorship. In recent years, it was revealed that thousands of infants were abducted from Republican families and placed in institutions or adopted by families loyal to Franco. That's not at all surprising. Um, I strongly recommend uh, it's a work of fantasy and it's fiction, uh, but the film Pan's Labyrinth, I think, offers a pretty compelling depiction of the partisan movement against uh, the, uh, you know, early days of fascism in Spain um, that will show you this sort of spirit uh, among the fascist side. Uh, Yardley writes, controversy also surrounds the Valley of the Fallen. Uh, the massive mountaintop shrine where Franco is buried, along with 30,000 others. Franco called the shrine a symbol of reconciliation, <clears throat> but other but scholars now say that some of the interred are Republican soldiers who were put there without their families being notified. And, of course, uh, Franco's going to call it a symbol of reconciliation because it's a symbol of his conquest, his victory. He built it. And it was, in fact, partly built with slave labor. Uh, I happen to know that for a fact. So um, that's not propaganda. That's uh, factual reality. But the reason I say this case is sort of fraught with uh, problems of moral ambiguity is because despite the legitimate grievances of Jose Maria Galante, who was tortured by this Mr. Pacheco guy, uh, also known as Billy the Kid. The idea that sins, crimes, are unforgivable is philosophically a treacherous premise. Uh, I'm not saying that that's what uh, Mr. Galante says. He seems to be asking primarily, really mainly, for acknowledgement, Um to recognize the items on the page before the page is turned. You don't just 
turn the page. And so that is a sort of a conditional element. Um, and that's what distinguishes true forgiveness from the sort of forgiveness which demands an apology. Uh, and of course, here we enter into the realms of personal, you know, spirituality and, and, and religious views, even perhaps. But ultimately, of a great lesson that literature attempts to teach us is, you know, where religion falls down. Of course, religion tries to teach us the idea, specifically the, the Christian religion, of uh, forgiveness, of uh, redemption and reconciliation, and you forgive people for their crimes. But is there a crime so terrible that it can't be forgiven? Well, the philosopher Jacques Derrida has written very interesting piece on the problem of forgiveness. And inherently, you must be able to, there should be no unforgivable crime uh, to put a condition on forgiveness. Say, well, I will forgive you if you apologize for the terrible thing you did. That's not really true forgiveness. That's a sort of a, because the person who you've forgiven is not still guilty. They have spoken out. They have effaced themselves. They have made the attempt to start anew by a spoken acknowledgement of wrong. I screwed up. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. Please forgive me. Okay, yes, I forgive you. Now we turn the page and there's the potential to move on into a new reality where this can now be forgotten, it's been acknowledged, etc. But there's a different kind of forgiveness, too, the more difficult kind that simply forgives without the apology. And here's where we sort of enter into the moral ambiguity here. I think Spain is at fault for just trying to just sort of shove this all into the past. I think the South African approach was a lot more healthy if a lot more slow and complicated, because they actually established as part of their process of uh, redemption and uh, redefinition of themselves as a nation, a reconciliation committee to acknowledge just this very thing. We can't spend the future of our country deciding who screwed who over in the crimes of our country's past. That's a lose-lose situation. Um, because the focus is not on the future. So Spain is a sort of a, an interesting ethical and moral crossroads here where they're going to have to decide the extent of, okay, do we let people know just what crimes were committed and then just now carry on like, you know, everything's okay? Um, or are they going to try to punish and prosecute and so forth? And I think that will be... The real question. Uh, it sounds like from the quotes that are uh, included in Yardley's article here that uh, Jose Maria Galenta is willing to forgive, but I think it's not unreasonable to say, hey, you know, the world needs to know what happened. Uh, I can forgive, I can forget, but that's a personal thing between me and the guy who beat the crap out of me as I hung from a pair of handcuffs, you know, 30 years ago. But the world needs to know that this happened and that these things happen. And so I agree with Derrida that there can't be an act so terrible that you could never forgive it uh, because such a premise sort of 
dooms the concept of forgiveness in and of itself. I think we have to be able to forgive the unforgivable. That's what makes forgiveness uh, a concept. Uh, but we also have to be aware that uh, things happen and have consequences. And, uh, you know, maybe your reputation is ruined because you used to think you were a badass guy spinning your handgun around your finger as Billy the Kid. Now you're living in a comfortable place and uh, you've got new friends and uh, new dogs and cats. But uh, I think maybe the world needs to know that uh, you used to beat people up while they were chained up. So we'll see what happens with that. We'll see uh, whether or not uh, he gets extradited to Argentina. Who would ever thought that Argentina would be a place where justice would be served? So maybe there is hope. Well, that'll do it for today. Stay tuned for Yazoo City Calling coming up uh, in just a few minutes, uh, your weekly excursion into the down-home blues. My name is Jim Dwyer, and I've been with you here on Gray Matters today. Let's take a little ride on a Swiss cable car now with Ernst Carroll for just a moment to take us up to the next station where Yazoo City Calling will commence. Thank <laughs> you.